Welcome to Agile Engineering. A podcast covering subjects like DevOps, Agile, Development, Cloud, and more. Featuring Liam Gulliver, Pete Gallagher, Louise Paling, Misha Bell, and Jonathan Ralph. With Kelsey Hightower. Welcome to the Agile Engineering Podcast, episode number 13. Uh, in this episode, we are going to be talking about can DevSecOps be damaging? Uh, joining me, as always, are my co hosts, Jonathan Ralph. Hello. Louise Paling. Hello. Misha Bell. Ahoy. Pete can't join us today because he's off judging an IoT-type competition. Uh, but in his stead, we have got the fantastic Kelsey Hightower. Welcome, Kelsey. Hello. Thanks for having me. Would you like to introduce yourself to, to the audience and, and let them know who you are and your sort of background? Yeah, I'm a self-proclaimed minimalist. I, you know, I live a, a super simple lifestyle in terms of material possessions, and I carry that through in my technical work. So... I work at Google Cloud. Um, internally, I'm a principal engineer, and I work on things like our serverless platform, but I'm well known in the industry for my work in the early days of Kubernetes. I wrote a book on it um, and tend to still engage a lot with the community and building tools on the external side. And just like many of our listeners today, I bet I've held most of the jobs that you can possibly hold in IT from racking servers <laughs> in the early 2000s to being a system administrator and writing code that runs on top. Brilliant. I think that's, that's a lot of our nice. background. I mean, with the exception of Misha, I think that's, the, that's how a lot of us started getting into to either early software dev or, or early mm. hardware side of things and then have, have grown going from, from there. So our topic for discussion on this episode is can DevSecOps be damaging? And it's quite an interesting one because it was it was one that uh, I think someone suggested a little while ago and it's not something that we've got around to speak to yet because we basically have that many great topics to talk through and mm. given the scope of the podcast, there is no shortage of, <laughs> no shortage of things for us to talk about really. I guess at, it, at its purest form, as a question of can it be damaging, I I think I want to take the the point of view of yes for the purpose of this discussion from from my point of perspective and, and kind of go from there. Like if I if I if I put on the hat that is the people who will always find a problem with automating that sec piece. So is that your I've... main objection then? It's just the fact that in the if DevOps is is looking to find better practices of of working collaboratively, where is it more the tooling or is it the the approach to automation that you're objecting to? Well, I, w I want to caveat this with in in real life, I believe it's great and love it and fantastic. <laughs> I understand it's the purpose of the discussion. <laughs> yeah, but why if if I hand over the responsibility of things like uh, making sure compliance is correct, making sure things like data sovereignty is correct, and I don't have direct view of these things, how can I trust my dev teams to be doing the right things in the right way? I, I think what I hear you saying is, or at least my perceptive on this, can it be dangerous? Yes, uh, it actually probably is. Most people that are practicing security are conforming to standards that don't actually require you to be secure. Most companies that have been hacked have all the certifications one can get, all of them, PCI compliance, they have all of them listed somewhere and they are still hacked and lose customer data. So we know the papers don't mean you're bulletproof and I think no one is, right? So it's a practice. I think what happens is before adjusting the behavior or even getting any results, you can say, we're doing DevSecOps. And people say, well, what are you doing? Well, first thing we did was rename the team. So there you have it. And <laughs> now we are going to do the automation. And I think the biggest worry I have is there has not been a lot of change between you renaming the team, your skill set, 
your discipline to actually start automating. Automating something that probably doesn't work doesn't really pay off a lot, right? You've automated an insecure mm. system. What good is that if you don't take the time to really think about you know, your true attack vectors and scaling up beyond what you buy from a vendor and configure through automation tools? Are we then saying, I'm aware that we haven't defined what DevSecOps is for this discussion. Are we saying that it's all around automating security? Yeah, I think that's a fair statement. You know, I think when people say DevSecOps, it's just whatever you want it to mean. And I think it, it leans so hard on the marketing side, because if I say someone, describe what you're doing without the buzzwords, go. And if they struggle, then it lets me know that this label that they're applying, they're not quite sure what it means either. Yeah. So I suppose uh, maybe another way of looking at the question is how, what good practices have you seen that allow security topics to be injected into DevOps work then? Is that is that another way of looking at DevSecOps? Is if, if DevOps was to try and make it a, a shared understanding of how we get working software out to production, how do we encapsulate in DevSecOps security topics in all, all the things that we do then? When you put an interface on top of security practices, like for example, if you go to the hardware store and you buy a lock, the interface is fairly clear. If you turn the key in one direction, you will lock it. If you turn it in another direction, you will unlock it. And you can tell if it's unlocked. And if you get really fancy, they have these, you know, digital locks, you know, they have their own security pitfalls and they may have an audit log. And so to me, I think about the analog world or before DevSecOps, maybe we were doing things in the analog way, buying a piece of hardware, using a metal key and turning things left and right. And if you think about automating and getting more insights into that process, maybe using something like a smart lock that can audit when the key was turned or not turned or mm. allow you to automate locking the door behind you. So if you forget to lock your door, a timer may go off and say, maybe in 15 seconds, it will engage, you know, the lock automatically for you. To me, that practice of locking a door is well known to the point that we can probably automate it because, you know, it's pretty binary. Either the door is open mm. or locked or unlocked. And so that's a good to me of putting an API on top of a security mechanism and trying to ensure, make it easy for people to do the right thing. You can hand out dedicated passcodes to different people and have some accountability on who is locking and unlocking the door. Mm -hmm. To me, that's a great example of moving from maybe more traditional practices to some of the practices that DevSecOps tries to articulate, but I don't necessarily see the evolution from the analog world of locking and unlocking the door with the key to adding a clean API that gives you way more insights into your security practice. Hmm. So yeah. uh, just sort of building on that, the, one of the, one of the great things around the agile movement and the DevOps movement is all around fast iterative feedback as, as a security person, I'm not comfortable with the idea of iterating on top of security. It should be secure by default. It should be that we, we should have all the security that we need in place. You know, iterating on top of that automation or, or putting little bits of automation in at a time isn't quite good enough. I, I want it all big bang and I want it all right now. <laughs> yeah, so that's not gonna work because your, your attack vector isn't static. The thing you're trying to secure isn't static. People keep moving the entrance, so you have to move the door. Um, nothing is stable enough for you to say, we're going to lock it down because people are, are changing the thing that needs to be secured. And so in that case, anything that you harden today, you know, you're never going to be able to cover every aspect of a thing. Number one, half the time, people don't even know what they're securing. Like, why are you putting the door there? That is the side of the house. No one goes in that way. They go in through this other hole. And you're like, oh, oh, I didn't, I thought since people couldn't see that hole that it would be fine. Like the kernel, what's going on down there? What about those third-party libraries that people pull from their CICD system? I have yet to meet a security professional 
that reads every single line of code of all of the dependencies and the transient dependencies that get deployed into production. So lock it down all you want, and mm. then I'm just going to poke a hole in it through random libraries that I import. I think that's the problem. That is why I don't think you can ever lock it down, but I think you can practice and observe and adjust on the fly. I, I do. I really like what you, well, the, the analogy you use there around people moving the entrance. So you need to move the door. That's, that, mm. that's probably something that's going to really help in having this, this discussion with others in the future. Yeah. I'm obviously coming from a very layperson point of view here. So just like from listening to what everyone said, like from the very top, Kelsey, you uh, said that you feel that like DevSecOps is damaging. By DevSecOps, you know, we've kind of said that we mean like automating security tasks. But the example that you gave to me, at least, sounded like if you're trying to automate tasks that are ineffective, in themselves before you automated them that doesn't sound like a good idea to me anyway the stuff that we've discussed like it sounds like if if you've got holes in your security or you you don't do things securely in the first place automating it is never going to be a good idea because you're just doing the wrong things faster but if you have your security practices down th then automating them how is that a bad thing because ah, you just go so faster and do the right thing. <laughs> yeah, so I think there's a difference between automation and another term like actuation or enforcement. So automation to me would be something like a team wants to launch a new application and they want a firewall rule. And so I'm going to give them an API because all automation needs an input, whether you're yeah. pulling a lever or providing some information. Yeah. So automation, you can check the box by saying, Kelsey can input some values and we will automate the actuation. And we hope that he put in the right values, but it's automated. So there you go. That's one tenth of the problem here because automating the thing without actually observing the usage of the thing, is it being abused? Is it actually the wrong thing? Cause it could be the wrong thing six months from now. And I think a big part of the process is automation is actually, to me, the easiest part. Because typically, once you know what to do, there's so many tools out there in order to say, do this, then do this, if this. Yeah. That's a well-known thing. But the practice of saying, did I do the right thing? And if I didn't, how would I even know? Hmm. That's the other part. So, um, And also, since most people may not understand all the attack vectors, like another analogy would be, the idea of DevSecOps could be bad if you hand out the label freely. For example, if I can pay $35 and take a martial arts class, and in one day they say, great, you chopped a piece of wood, your hand hurts, the wood didn't break, but you put in a great effort. You really, really want to be a black belt, so here's your belt. <laughs> it's going to be $10. So you buy the belt, you put it on. And they have a little mirror at the exit too, so you can do a few poses to make sure you look mean and tough. And then you go and try to pick fights with people. Or the attack vector is that other people are doing things beyond martial arts. They have like other tools to deal with you. But you don't know this yet, but you have your black belt. So you have this false sense of confidence. Mm -hmm. And there is this sign that says fight arena here. Like that's like launching the app on the public internet. And you go into the arena fully dressed in your, you know, karate suit and your black belt tied tightly, but you don't actually know how to fight. You've never fought anyone before. They just told you you were ready. So you go into the arena and luckily no one wants to fight you because they look at you and like, ah, not important. And so you think that you're undefeated, right? Because you've never had a battle. So you're this undefeated champ. But then one day someone decides to fight you and you have to actually fight them and you lose immediately and you go back to the drawing board and say, damn, turns out I actually don't know how to fight. Mm. I bought all this stuff. I'm wearing it correctly. I can even do jump kicks, but I can't actually fight anyone. And I think this is where a lot of people are getting a false sense of security by saying we are practicing DevSecOps and we bought a bunch of DevSecOps tools but they've never, ever had to exercise the ability to actually leverage those things. Yeah. So are we saying that, like, 
DevSecOps, it, like, the misunderstanding of DevSecOps and what that is and, like, how to do it well is the problem as opposed to, you know, the title of the, the show, like, DevSecOps, can, can it be damaging itself? It, it doesn't seem to me like it in and of itself is a bad thing, but if people misunderstand what it is and how to do it well, that that's the bad thing. Yeah, I would I would say <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah, like we've turned up we've turned a lot of our disciplines into marketing terms. Hmm. Yes. You can <laughs> very you much can, aware of can, that. <laughs> right? Yeah. You can do the thing without even knowing how to do it. And I like the fact that we may help define some practices. So let's talk about some of the positives of it. The positive is yeah. we're getting to a point where we're saying in order to keep up with the new security threats, the world is a lot more dynamic. People are using a lot more or a lot different platforms than normal. The attack vectors have changed. And at this point, the common practices of buy something from a vendor, co configure it correctly, cross your fingers that no one changes anything. That's not going to work in the world we live in now. So DevSecOps tries to articulate a set of practices, in some cases, tools, a way of working in a way that you can have this label. The problem is anyone can take the label and apply it to what they're doing and say, I've seen websites do this last week, internet security appliance this week, best way to achieve DevSecOps in under 10 minutes. And people are like, yeah, I'll click on that. Yeah. There's lots, lots of clickbaity stuff, isn't there? Because of that sort of marketing, uh, marketing, marketification, I guess, of a lot of these terms in, in tools where, you know, it's like, okay, I could give somebody that, that fishing rod, but they don't know how to fish. Yeah. They know how to take pictures for the Tinder profile. Mm. Well, that's about it. <laughs> I think um, what we're doing here is we're moving away. So we started out with this definition of it's all about automating the security, but I don't think that's what we're saying at all. It's mm. it's one aspect of it. It's it's like saying DevOps is all about automation. Was actually, <laughs> I mean, if we're going to the the definition which includes automation, it's the whole calms piece. And I think it's true when we add sec in there as well. Automation is an absolutely a key part of this, but you need to have the culture around it where people understand what you what you're doing. You need to have those measurements so you know if it's working. You you need to share what you're doing. And, and learn best practices you need the whole piece for it all to come together to to actually make a lot of sense and what i've seen in my years so before devops was a word a lot of people were practicing this idea of cross disciplines working together almost every aspect of society has cross disciplines working together it's just yeah. normally how the world actually works <laughs> so in tech people felt the need to kind of overcorrect and make it very explicit. And I think there's been some benefits there. But one thing that I hear omitted from the conversation so much is what actual tangible skills do you need? Right? Like if I was going to fly a plane, you actually need to know how to fly a plane. You can't say I'm a pilot. So I'm going to fly this. Ah, no, no, hold on. I don't want you to practice flying this plane with me on board and you've never flown a plane before. And maybe our industry isn't mature enough to really codify what it means to have the necessary set of skills. I think we try to encode these things in our products. And I think there is a room for products to help where, you know, when a product has an API, I think what we're seeing now in this new era is that most of these things are moving towards becoming policy engines. So you tell me what you want to have happen. And I will go configure all the other subcomponents. And that may be a combination of firewall rules, rate limiting tools. We're starting to encapsulate a lot of this. I think some people even refer to it as a shifting left, where we talk about our desired state more than we talk about the individual knobs on all of the security tools. And we try to make them work as a holistic system. And if we can do that, then we may be able to actually automate away the things around observability making sure we can see these things, making sure people know what the current setting is and then understand why that is not suitable. So then we can make an educated guess as humans on how to reconfigure the system at a high enough level that we're not getting the individual components wrong. I think for me that some of the, the noise is, there's a naivety, I suppose as humans, we assume that the, 
the ceiling of our office isn't going to fall in. We assume that, that the status quo is we don't have to search for danger around every corner. But you're right about the threat that the internet now provides, especially as the attacks that we're seeing are becoming themselves automated and there are far more threats out there than there ever used to be. And so in some respects, the, the mindset shift now has to be, it's not if we're going to be attacked, it's when we're going to be attacked. And I think an awful lot of that focus is changing based on the amount of high value problems that you see on the internet. And so in some respects, I find that the, the needle in the haystack now is a job where you have to collect the right data to spot when things go wrong, not just naively assume that your application is invincible, like your analogy was earlier. So in some respects, the, the big data aspect of this, or collecting the right data rather than lots of the wrong data, is actually far more of the discipline now as we learn as a moving from on-premise to cloud. I think a lot of that assumption that a big monolithic database server that on-prem was always going to be available so nobody ever wrote defensive code around it to make sure that if it did go offline it the application wouldn't break the cloud era has taught us a bit more that we can't rely on these things but in some respects that discipline of we need to look for these problems and get our applications to tell us when somebody's doing something wrong that uh, that is more of the sec focus now yeah and i think all of these things have been true it's just that it's just been very hard to talk about the hard work required to get there, mm. right? And I think you can't just have a security team over here, a dev team over here. And in many ways, without each of them kind of knowing what the shared goals are, one set of actions undermines the other. And I think that is just the status quo for most organizations, period. Security team believes they've done a good job locking everything down. Developers believe that they have not done anything to unravel all of that work and then it's kind of let's see what happens oh we've been hacked what should we do about it <laughs> or someone else tells us hey um i have your customer database since six months ago uh did you guys know it's on the internet for anyone to download oh thanks for telling us and it's like what something's missing in our practice something's missing in our discipline and i think the goal was DevSecOps, if we combine a lot of these disciplines like we have for other aspects of tech into the security realm, we can actually start to close the gap between these two worlds. It's kind of um, answered my question before I've asked it a little bit, but I'm still going to ask it anyway. I was going uh, to say, how would things be configured and how would things work and what kind of knowledge would you share across the board in a perfect world? I think in a perfect world, the systems we use are so general purpose that they need tons of configuration to even be useful. And so that presents a problem. Unless you know what all of the default settings are, you may not even be aware. And traditionally what we've done in our data centers is we tried to hide behind the firewall. Let's just lock everything down 100% and poke little holes in the infrastructure and we should be good. But it turns out many of the attack vectors are actually through the application. So most attacks are coming through the front door, the one that you've opened on purpose. There's very little, you know, people trying to hit a port that isn't open. That doesn't really make a lot of sense. I'm not going to carve a new hole in your wall when there's a door that I can try to break through. And I think that's the, the thing that we have to kind of say that is the reality. So given that reality, we need more people who understand the full layer. So for example, there are a lot of security professionals out there who do know how kernels work, who do know how application frameworks work, and then they know what trade-offs to make in order to have them be usable. Uh, they enter more into a trust but verify. So one thing I think that was really game-changing for the industry was zero trust, meaning let's not try to pretend that you can trust anything, right? Like, hey, give me your IP address and I'll put it in my firewall to allow you through. Well. The thing is, I don't know how much control of your own systems that you have. So there's no point in me actually trusting you to that degree. The discipline of saying zero trust means I need to see up and down the entire stack where we are not implicitly trusting anything. And I think this is where automation comes into play. So instead of me saying, oh, I trust you, let me put your credentials on this server so you can log in. I flip it around and say, I like you, but I don't trust you. These are different things. And so since I don't trust you, 
then I'm going to have to watch every action that you do because you may not be in control of your computer or your systems all the time. So we're going to have a way to identify you, your system, and we're going to log everything that you do. And we're going to do some analysis on it to see if you're doing anything bad. And we may have to go back retrospectively to see if you've ever done anything bad. I think this trust, but or not really trust, but zero trust gives us the ability to, to say our bar needs to be top to bottom needs to be auditable in a way that even if we were hacked, we'll find out as quickly as possible. Hmm. How do you balance like having really, really high and like, you know, zero trust kind of like security protocols against getting things done like on a day to day basis, like especially like from complaints from like, you know, a dev team or, you know, people that want to push things through that don't necessarily think that they have to have like security in mind or or whatever, or like think that it's like too much. Like, how do you balance? Yeah, like productivity with security. I actually think you go faster. And the reason why I well, say with that zero is trust, do you mean? Yeah, with zero trust. When you come from a zero trust, so the baseline is clear. We trust nothing. And so that means in order to open something up, you almost have to give access to every part of the system. So the way we traditionally do this now inside of the network, we have policy engines or service meshes, something that can be programmed based on a set of rules. So we can say things like an application with this identity can talk to these other applications. That's the level of extraction we work. And the thing that we have underpinning our zero trust environments know how to take those identities and do all the right things across all of the layers. This is very different from the situation of let's have a meeting and explain to me what you're trying to do. Okay. That seems fishy. Hmm. I don't quite understand what you're trying to do. So let's meet next week and we'll try again. And then once I believe you, I have to go touch maybe seven or eight different products because they all have their own rules that need to be applied to actually make what you want to work versus having a system that's saying we trust no one. And when we decide to give people temporary access or explicit permission to do something, this is how we communicate that goal. And that's why I think some of these newer tools that have more of a declarative interface that actually attaches identities to every component to your laptop, to the applications, and then you can start to use rules like app A can talk to app B, and then all the systems in between can take that policy and do what it takes to allow those two things to communicate very explicitly. Mm. Sorry, I've, there are various things that you mentioned uh, when you were talking just now that I just don't know what they are. <laughs> um, I don't know what a declarative thing is. Um, and also, the you said you take you have an application and you take it across all layers. Uh, Sorry, how about could you explain? So, I don't know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. So let's say you have building security. Everyone has a badge, you know, that goes to work and maybe there's a series of doors that you have to walk through uh -huh. in order to get to your desk. Physical and so security. Yeah. physical security. So we'll uh -huh. kind of use that as the analogy. So before we have the automated system, we have a door person who yeah. needs to rememorize all the people who work here. Look at them. Maybe they ask a few questions. And then maybe they go on their laptop and look up and say, are you fired? Nope, you still work here. You can get through this door. And they do that several times per day. The problem here, though, is you rotate the staff. And it's like, I'm sorry, I don't know who you are. And my internet is down and I can't pull up your picture. So you're going to have to wait out here. And then you, they go find someone. Can you vouch for this person? And this process is really, really terrible. And onboarding a new person requires all of this extra training, all of these lookup, all of these systems that need to be touched just to let people come in and do their job. A lot of friction there. Hmm. Now, in a zero trust world, we're saying we don't necessarily trust even the security person. We don't trust them to make judgment on who to allow in and out. Okay. So instead of that, we're going to have to have a system that can do these decisions in real time. So when you touch your badge on the reader, Behind the scenes, there is some database that will check quickly if you're still employed. Should you be coming through this door in particular to do your job? Now, the people who configured this system is very different than trying to train every door person. In this system, we will tell the system, hey, Kelsey is allowed to be in building A, B, and C. Kelsey has access to these five floors. And during lunchtime, 
through these hours, he's allowed to go to the cafeteria. So that's more of a declarative way, not telling, having a staff meeting in the morning, hey, people on your list, they're allowed to go to lunch around these times, make sure you remember all of those things. That's a nightmare to manage, and it's hard to spread all the information to all the people who need to have it versus putting automated locks on every door and requiring people to badge in mm -hmm. because we don't trust anyone. We declare what you can do and we have the system enforce it. Okay, thank you. I appreciate that. What about the people who configured and built that system though? Do you trust them? What if right. they like, you know, built a I little like hole, a little Misha. back door? Yeah. I love I love the suspicion here, right? So yeah. Yeah. I, I just want to point out that I'm hiring at the moment and these are great <laughs> things. To... Oh, cool. Yeah. Good questions. Wow. Yeah, so I would say we don't really trust them either. So when they go and make rules, we also give them a set of scopes that they can make rules for. So we would say, you know, we're going to audit when this person made the rule. So we at least know who put the rule in place. And now when we start to have security incidents, right? Maybe someone tailgated someone into one of the buildings, we'll know whose badge did it. And we'll also know who gave that person permission to even use their badge that way. This allows us to go back and bring in all the right people necessary during the investigation time. So while we will let them configure the rules, there will be people on the other side that can see, hey, there's a new that rule that got put in by Bob, do we trust Bob to be making these kind of rules? Yes, we do. So we have an audit log and then maybe periodically you'll have a different team. Why are we changing people's security policies outside of their hire date? This is an anomaly. We don't expect that to happen more than one or two times, maybe when they switch teams. And so the system now has reporting that says someone's access changed, but there has been no related event such as joining a new team or being assigned to a new project. And so now what I can do is I can go find out who made the change because your identity is required to deal with the system. And, and remember, uh, the part about okay. zero trust is I need your explicit identity. So I can't take the identity of the team. I can't look at a schedule and say someone was sitting here at this day. No, I explicitly need to know it was Bob who put in this change so we can trace everything back. So it's not the fact that no one can do anything. It's just that with zero trust, we need to be able to verify who did what when so we can trace it all back. Don't you need at least one person or one machine or one thing to ultimately give control and permission? Because you can't have a chain of, of either deny or accept without an originating point because mm. it goes further and further up. There has to be someone at the top. So you have to trust at least one individual like system or person and what if that's corrupt not necessarily so um i mean not security wise but more just devops wise i've worked in places where i was the person who was doing that approval but i was not the person who was able to put it all in so i couldn't have configured it oh, but i could have like viewed it line. and said yeah that's right yeah so you I mean, with enough okay. people you can always break the system it's yeah. like oh, one what? person's got to do it and one's got to approve it well what if they work together okay we'll add yeah. another person in what if all three of them work together what if yeah. all four of them what if these yeah. 50 people you need to pick a number and say that many people review it and, and you have to get to a point you need to trust it how do you get to that point how do you know well, you've got How to balance you know? risk, haven't you, at the end of the day? I mean, it, 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 these things are all cost money and time to implement. You've got to weigh up uh, the, the risk of, of this happening versus bad actors deliberately doing something. Versus, I mean, a lot of startups will skip this kind of stuff because it's just heavyweight when you are literally sitting opposite the people that you're doing it. It's when you start <laughs> to scale with you're working out of sight of people and that you might need to introduce these things. But I think also cloud has introduced this because a lot of the, the machines are zero trust because they are not our kit anymore we have to assume that that these things are compromisable themselves thank you so i, ju I just i just kind of want to zero in a little bit around around the zero trust stuff. so you know the, the top of the show we're talking about uh can dev sec ops be damaging and that's that's a broad statement uh, and 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 a bold question to, to ask i think but from the point of view of the trust as a whole, now, for high-performing DevOps organizations, 
I think it is fair to say that you that that level of high or elite performance requires a high level of trust between people, between teams, between processes. Does the does zero trust from a security standpoint mean that that is at odds with that process, or how do you make those two coexist? So. I think the reality is if you have a company that's making tons of money, no one will care how inefficient the process is. It's just the reality. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If your processes are the best and you make no money, don't matter. You'll be out of business and you can definitely write a book about how awesome your process was while you're out of business. You'll have plenty of time to do so. So I think we have to actually, you know, come back to reality. I think what most people are finding is that they have, if you think about a lot of the great brands that you seem struggle with these things, Mm. their conclusion is that they're not reaching their full potential, right? They're able to service their customers, even if it's not the best. And they know that they're not necessarily performing at maximum values because you got to get to a certain point where this last mile optimization makes any sense, right? Because if you're just like three or four people, maybe, and you only have five customers, you might be able to service them manually. So I think when you start to get into the larger scales, you start looking around and saying, are we truly utilizing our talent in the best possible way? So when we talk about DevSecOps, okay, that's an idea. Maybe there's, it's rooted in some philosophies that we draw on from other disciplines, but it's all a practice because the highest performing DevOps organizations are also just the highest performing organizations, no matter mm-hmm. what title they pick to label themselves, right? Because a lot of times the executive team doesn't even know what DevOps is and somehow they're still doing just fine. So I think when we think about that is we have to root it in something. And I think the tools that we use to root it in, whether it's zero trust or agile, or uh, we start automating things in order to free up my talent to go and be creative doing things that maybe no other organization can do. I think that's the real core of all of this. So I think when we say DevSecOps can be damaging, and I'm putting that it can be damaging, not not that it is damaging, Mm -hmm. it's that when people just take the title without the work, like, hey, I'm a world champion. Have you won anything? No, but I am a world champion. It's like, whoa, (laughs) slow down. Like, what are you practicing? So if we frame it as I'm acknowledging my shortcomings, I acknowledge that I have gaps in my expertise and I want to start working on the change. I think it would be better to say, we're going to practice a new way of doing things. And honestly, and the last thing I'll say here is I want people to be able to describe exactly how the behavior changes without saying DevSecOps. So let's ban the word of DevSecOps. Now explain to me exactly what you're doing. Then it becomes a lot clearer where the work is versus, yeah, we're going to work on our DevSecOps. Okay, tell me exactly what you're going to do. Uh, oh, we're going to do Dev, then Sec, and then Ops. It's like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. I really hope no one's ever said that. <laughs> I, you say that. I, I have come across that. This really? Week. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Almost okay. said exactly the same way Kelsey said it as well. But for me, this this whole terms is is more about empowering teams to say you have the right to make decisions in these spaces than necessarily saying everybody has to be a generalist in every bit of that. And I think in some respects, I've talked to people in the past that assume that a single individual is expected to be a security professional, a developer expert, and a, and the ability to CICD the application. And that's not what we're trying to say with these practices, is to say that we are able within a, a small domain to actually have sensible conversations about what these topics mean to our application or our area of work. And I think the risk is that some people take this, as you said earlier, Kelsey, this marketing buzzword and treat it as almost like a, a job description rather than necessarily a domain boundary description. Mm. Uh, are we saying that? in the same way that DevOps engineer is not a job title. Correct. Uh, DevSecOps engineer is also not a job title. Yeah. Uh, I'd have to disagree um, <laughs> only because like that's what it said on my other half's contract. So uh, well, it not, is a job should title. should not be. It, yeah, <laughs> probably, maybe not, but also was. Um, yeah, I mean, so he was a DevSecOps, well, yeah, he was a DevSecOps engineer at a large 
financial uh, company. And that was quite interesting to understand the kind of things that he was responsible for, like the way that he was kind of like viewed, like within the company and stuff. And I mean, it's very individual experience to kind of like draw on because it's a large company that needs, well, at least felt the need to have a DevSecOps team for, for various different things. But like his 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 uh, duties were wide and varied, like from building the infrastructure, from building, you know, like I am thingies um i am uh, i can't remember sorry i can't remember Policy. i just remember him saying i am policies a lot policies thank okay. you um <laughs> and yeah um like being the kind of gatekeeper on like you know cicd stuff if it wasn't like secure like sending it back and things like that so like i don't know i i think that it that that seemed like a reasonable thing for that company to have although that company did also get attacked <laughs> but not due to anything that he did. <laughs> so that's useful. I think, um, I think there's an element to what you're saying, though, there, Misha. And it's something like, like Kelsey mentioned earlier around the shift in thinking. It, it, it's, uh, and I think Jonathan also made a point around it, but I think that the first kind of rule now around this is to just, to, just to accept that if somebody wants to get in, they're going to get in. Yeah. Massively, yeah, definitely. If they want it badly like, enough. Yeah, the best defense is a good offense so really they should have hired you know a hacker um to try and attempt to get in you know to attempt well, to get I mean, you've, got, you've got concepts like red versus blue yeah 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 you and i i think that's 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 not necessarily something you should automate in my opinion you know, i know that i think there are elements to it that you probably could but i think there needs to be that human element to it as well yeah do you yeah. want to explain what you mean by red versus blue, Liam? Uh, well, let's let's let me try and not make a hash of this. Um, so, <laughs> uh, it's like a, a a war games exercise, for argument's sake, uh, for, for or rather for lack of a better description, where we have a red team who are the uh, antagonists. Yeah, they're they're trying to attack. They're trying to get into the system through any means necessary. It could be social engineering. It could be through trying to DDoS something, etc. And then we have a blue team who are the, the the friendlies, the defenders, who are looking to get partly better at defending um, and, and up their fitness in that, but also looking for, okay, well, what do these attacks look like in our system and how can we close that gap? Yeah, so if we go back to the martial arts analogy, this would be like your sparring partner. So before you go out to pretend yeah. you can fight, you would just say, maybe we should practice fighting in a safe <laughs> arena where we can oh. learn from the experience like, ow, that hurt. Yeah, you should probably block. Ah, yes, that's what the hands can be used for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Stop to earn that black belt. But it's, it's a case of, of making sure that these topics are important enough in a team to understand that is part of the definition of done then I suppose is what we're saying is that it's no it's no good anymore just to throw it out and, and hope for the best we have to actually plan this in as time for delivering a solution is to say well does it actually stand up to not be easily brought down by a, a simple SQL injection attack or a whatever else stuff I mean a lot of people point to them doing OWASP top 10 vulnerabilities and stuff. But again, there's an awful lot of people that are, are focusing too generally than, than necessarily saying, well, actually, these things should be baked into our basic policy of stuff that we should test against anyway. Well, the thing I think the red team, blue team, I think some people even call the purple team in the middle who analyzes the results of this. Ah. Um, the, the thing that's unique about that whole scenario is that it's a real life practice. It's that practice that's, it's never done. You're always practicing. And I think that's the thing that makes people a lot more secure is by constantly practicing, doing the exercises, learning as you go. And then I think where automation comes into play, even the red team and the blue team don't want to manually rerun their scenarios. When you find a way to defend yourself, it's like getting a vaccine. You don't want to just, you know, catch the thing and then just let your body go through it. Naturally, you might decide to be proactive. And sometimes proactive means buying maybe an active firewall that can learn from traffic patterns based on certain rules and policies that you've input to the system and then allow it to learn in real time and make adjustments on the fly. And then maybe the red team says, wow, 
okay, now they have this active firewall that makes it way more challenging to do some of the attacks that we've had. So maybe we have to automate our attack to randomize things faster than we could ever do. And so I think this is where we start to serialize our learning. So when I think about automation in these disciplines, as humans discover things, red and blue teams do a good job of discovering things that we don't even know to automate yet. But once we do, if you want a true return on the investment, it makes a ton of sense to put that back into the system so it can be enforced in real time. And honestly, this is what most security products do, where they attempt to do this for the masses because we can't realistically expect every company in the world to be really good at this and automate and build these systems themselves. A lot of the time these things are done as system boundaries, are you? what the customer's interacting with. I wonder, Kelsey, with your experience of containers, how much has the splitting of monoliths down to small yeah. components actually forced the issue of, of these things, even internally, even if it's not externally? What, what's containerization done to the topic of security. I guess just expanding on that a little bit as well, Jonathan, especially with, with Kelsey's area of work at, at Google is around this. How does that look from a serverless standpoint as well? Yeah. So these are two good questions. I think what containerization did was gave people this false sense of security. Uh, if I just put it in a container, it's going to be more secure. And that's not necessarily the right way to think about containers. Now, microservices that are then put into containers, I think is something that really did force the issue where you start to say, I'm going to break up this one app where I can kind of secure one front door. And then what I'm going to do is turn this one house into 10,000 apartments and put a front door into each of them. Now you have to go and put locks on 10,000 doors instead of one. Now there's other benefits you get in some of this breaking things up, but most people were not equipped to deal with giving an identity to each type of app and then automating. So maybe you were doing it manual before, but in the world of containers where applications come and go, taking advantage of the benefits of containerization, which is the ability to package an app and pretty much run it on any computer or machine that you want. Well, most of the security tools people were using had no integrations. So security people would say, well, what's the IP address of that app? It's like, no, 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 no. This app will have eight to nine copies, and I can't tell you ahead of time what the exact IP will be. And so a lot of security practices would fall apart because they had no way of dealing with the dynamic world that containerization brought in. So then you had to build all the layers of security. Some people just started from scratch and they gave words to it like cloud native security, same thing with integrations. Yeah. And then when you get to serverless, serverless is basically saying, I'm going to delegate a lot more of my security to the cloud provider. Now people will say, oh my God, how could you do that? Well, you already outsource your security to your phone that you carry into your pocket. You, even if you have your own data center and servers, you've outsourced your security to the person who makes your CPU, your processor that runs on those servers. So we've already delegated a lot of our security to vendors around, it's just been piecemeal. In the world of serverless, what we say is we trust that Google, who believes in zero trust, can demonstrate that they've implemented, give me an audit log, maybe I delegate mainly the infrastructure, so serverless, so without the infrastructure, I'll give that to my cloud provider, but I am still responsible for what I allow into the front door, but at least they have good tools for me to describe what should come to that front door. I certainly think that serverless has definitely got a lot of pluses because you are effectively saying I, I am buying into somebody else solving these problems for me and I don't, I therefore can just get on with the business value add stuff that I need to focus on. And I think that's where working with cloud partners, certainly on serverless is very interesting. And I, I've got a lot out of working with serverless technology so far because of that, because you are, instead of broadening the scope, whereas if you said to a DevSecOps team, right, you've got a, you're, you're responsible now for the data center, that's a big job. Whereas in fact, what we're able to do with having teams looking at smaller domain areas, if you can say to them, and also you can use this technology, which also means you don't have to reinvent the wheel, all power to the cloud provider for giving us that platform to build on. Yeah, and think about it. Most companies do this for um, payments 
you know, if you sell things, you take payments through the Visa MasterCard network or one of the others. And so people are kind of used to having infrastructure streamline critical business functions. I just think compute is kind of the last domino to really have a great option. Number one, I think serverless has a long way to go to be able to run uh, the type of applications people build today. Uh, we can't expect everyone to rebuild all of their apps for serverless platforms, but I do think we're getting there because some new serverless platforms are based on containerization. So you're not necessarily having to change your entire app style, but we should be able to get some of those serverless benefits, even to the more traditional apps people write today. Hmm. Just um, for anybody who might not be technical, I had to, Funnily enough, I had to actually explain what serverless was to my boss and MD earlier today, which was fun. Kelsey, could you describe what serverless is, like really, really briefly, just for anyone that doesn't know? I mean, so the the, the nice thing about serverless is basically saying the server, the infrastructure, is kind of the thing that you're not the most interested in. So what if we took it away, what would remain? And it's really targeted towards software developers. So think about it. When you have a great idea, the first thing that pops in your head as a software developer is to articulate your idea in code, yeah. build the code and get that code in front of your customer as soon as possible. Yeah. What you don't typically do is say, you know what, let's go buy some servers and configure them for a few months and then, and then we'll write the code. So serverless is saying, let's take away the infrastructure and let's give people the ability to just leverage the infrastructure for what they want to do. So if you want to go to another country, you go to the airport, that's fully managed infrastructure. You buy your ticket, you put your destination, and you rely on the airline and the airports to do their job so you can focus on getting to your destination. In the current world where people may not have access to a serverless environment, your analogy would be go build an airport, buy an airplane, get a pilot's license and learn mm -hmm. to fly and then try to build a reservation system so that people that work at your organization can book a flight with you. And this is what most people are going through in their journey right now. And then when your team gets a taste of going to an airport that has like a mobile app and reward points and, you know, <laughs> you know, like flights going from anywhere, they come back to your airport and say, Hey, um, I don't know if we should be trying to build an airport because I don't think we can afford to maintain this. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's a really good analogy as well, Kelsey. Um, so folks, mm. I think we are about at time. If it's okay with everybody, I'd like to move us into sort of key takeaways, starting with Misha. So, thank, first off, thank you very much, Kelsey. That's given me a lot of food for thought. Um, I've asked you quite a lot of uh, questions, <laughs> some which I thought were inane, but apparently maybe not. Um, my key takeaway will probably be um, about thinking about the question as a whole. Like, as Liam said, it, it's a very wide question. I don't think that, personally, to answer the question of the show, I don't think that DevSecOps can be damaging in itself. I think that when each part is not done well or appropriately for the size and, and um, scale of the company, then that that is, then yes, I think that it can be. But I I think that it's the actual the the you know the not understanding what's what security is and you know with your um, black belt uh, kind of um, analogy. You can't go into a ring not knowing what to do and calling yourself DevSecOps team. It just never is going to work. So, I yeah, I think it's really interesting and like the the serverless um, aspect as well of taking away a lot of that kind of thought needed to, to to speed up things up and to get people to where they need to be quicker is is also a really good um, a really good aspect of the technology that I don't think that I probably considered that much. Um, so yeah, thank you very much. It was very enlightening. Jonathan. So for me, two, two thoughts come to mind. One is that the, the useful aspect of DevSecOps, which is not harmful, is the fact that we are reminding people that security is important. 
And whilst I don't appreciate somebody sticking another three-letter acronym into that to make it ever longer... <laughs> I was um, waiting for that to come up. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to become... I mean, it's already a mouthful. It's just going to get ridiculous when we get compliance and legal wanting to throw in their towel into this mix as well. But for me, the, the one good thing about it is it's reminding people to be secure first or as at least as secure as they, they can be. And I think the other thing that it's reminded me is is listening to the eloquence of Kelsey's analogies is that we have a lot of a lot of the battle is is succinctly explaining our concerns and solutions by just talking more about how we can do better. And so some of the better ways that uh, the takeaway for me is some of the analogies that Kelsey's used are going to be really useful to start conversations. So I, I'm really appreciative of him sharing those. Louise. Uh, my thoughts on like, DevSecOps, I don't like adding sec in there. DevOps already encompasses a whole range of things and we kind of accept that it's it's a misnomer, it's not the right thing, and throwing sec in there kind of minimises all of the other things. On the other hand, we do seem to keep forgetting about security. And it's really, really important. So adding it in there, as Jonathan says, it it, it keeps it in mind and it keeps it up front and centre. And you know, we really do need to focus on this. Um, as to whether it's damaging, I think we've come to the conclusion that it's not. That we all seem to agree. This is, I mean, despite Liam's, I mean, I do feel I need to say, for the sake of Liam's career, uh, all of his. Um, playing security devil's advocate this isn't the visual medium but i can see him and he looks very <laughs> uncomfortable the whole time <laughs> well done but yeah despite that i think we agree that this is the right thing to do where it's damaging is where it's devsecops theater where it's kelsey's buying a black belt analogy there when you're not actually doing it you're just trying to find some boxes you can tick to make it look like you're doing it peacocking um, yeah i think i think it's I think it's dangerous to, to put a label on it from that point of view. Uh, but the actually doing it, I think, is is definitely the right thing to do. Um, and I think one of the, the big analogies, uh, big, big parts in here that I will definitely take away is is that the attackers are continually evolving. So we need to be constantly evolving the locks and the security we've got around that. Uh, it, this isn't This isn't something you can just do and get right and say, right, we've done security, what's next? Yeah, I think uh, you know, for, for the most part, there, I I agree with you, Louise. I mean, for for me, have we answered the question? Can DevSecOps be damaging? I think done incorrectly, or or, or the tools used incorrectly. Yes, absolutely. I think, but I think that applies to everything. Like if if you if you're giving somebody all of these great tools to be able to do everything with, and, and like Kelsey mentioned earlier, like nobody's going to know all these config settings. Nobody's going to know this vast array of things that you could possibly build out of it or or do with one mistake, and it could go, all go horribly wrong. But I do believe it's about fitness and being able to get better at it as time goes on. Get to a place where you can automate those things that are repeatable and reliable. And, you know, when you're looking through that, that fitness, through things like red versus blue exercises and so on, where we are at a place where we can say, okay, well, this worked last time I got in. We've done some fixes. Here, let, let's test it again. And then to automate that thing doesn't break, it, basically to automate that test to make sure it doesn't break again in future is great. As well as, you know, going to, to Kelsey's uh, analogy earlier in the show around moving that, that door, you know, we, we, we're testing where the door was, making sure that's still still, still that where it needs to be, and then evolving our processes from there. Um, Kelsey, what, what, your, what are your takeaways from the discussion? Yeah, I think I agree with, you know, everyone else. You know, I still kind of lean towards um, the words being harmful because we worked really hard in development world to make sure every engineer understood that they were responsible for writing tests. And mm -hmm. now most engineers write tests because they know that testing the software is also part of their responsibility. And so when you think about other industries that are a little bit more mature, like if you're an architect, safety is built into the discipline. You can't build bridges and say, oh, we'll add safety later. 
that doesn't that that's not even allowed it's not even legal to practice that way so i think in our world is developers to me means everything from the business function how it's priced how it's analyzed the customer that gives you feedback is also part of the developer process and I, and I think what we mean is that as a developer, as someone responsible for building things, there's an array of skills that you'd need. And as we continue to add acronyms to this word, right, it's gonna be the alphabet ops. Like whatever your role is, you are kind of responsible for thinking about the related things to the thing that you're building in order to be a responsible developer in this space. So I think at some point, I know the industry is gonna mature when we get rid of the DevSecOps type of terms and we start really talking about what it means to be a truly a senior or principled engineer, that you understand that these things are related and you may just be an engineer that works in security, but leverages all the skills that are available to any development process. So I'm waiting until the buzzwords disappear and the maturity emerges. I think the the one that the term that we'd like to propose here would be agile engineering. Uh, <laughs> Clues in the name, because <laughs> it is kind yeah. of all of those things, right? Kelsey, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. I think that that discussion was was really enlightening as well, and it's it's definitely been one of the the. Like I, well, I, I stayed quiet through a lot of it because I was quite happy to listen to this to this discussion throughout. Thank you so much for, for taking the time out of your day to, to come on the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, brilliant. Um, uh, and thank you, folks, for listening to the Agile Engineering Podcast. Uh, you can let us know your thoughts on whether or not DevSecOps can be dangerous or not. Uh, or you can suggest topics for discussion by getting in touch with us over on Twitter on at AgileEngPodcast. You can also go to our website, AgileEngineeringPodcast.com, or you can contribute directly to our GitHub repo, which is github.com forward slash engineeringpodcast. If you like what you've heard in this episode, uh, please feel free to consider contributing to us on Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash agileengineering. And we'll see you again next time. Oh, 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 oh,